Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning we re read the chapter 24 of 1 Samuel under the heading of David Spares Saul's Life. Um, you may like to watch on the screen or just listen, whatever uh, suits you. Let's read. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert in En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept unnoticed and cut a corner off Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, with these words David rebuked his men, and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognise that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the King of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it, and may he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord 
that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Thanks for that reading, David. Um, Let me add my welcome to Mark's. My name's Rod. If you're new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you with us. And we've been working through all of this term, uh, 1 Samuel, and we've reached this section today where we're looking at a really big chunk from chapters 21 to 26. So we're going to hone in largely on chapter 24 to 26 and follow one particular theme in terms of God's direction and guidance for us. So let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we come to his word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this morning. We pray, Lord, that you might help us to learn from these events in Israel's history about the way you guide and direct your people and then reflect on how you continue to do that today for us. Lord, we ask for your help to see clearly your faithfulness and care of our needs too. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1860s in the United States, uh, the Civil War had just finished. Uh, The Northerners had won, uh, the Southerners had been defeated, and Abraham Lincoln was the president. And uh, a bunch of hot-blooded Southerners, previously viewed as rebels, managed to come north and have an audience with Lincoln and explain some of their grievances. Lincoln received them well and in his own very polite and gentle way, soon thawed the ice with them, and they went away with uh, renewed respect for their well-known foe. But one of the northern congressmen who had been watching this meeting came in after it and criticised Lincoln and said to him, look, you shouldn't be befriending our enemies. I mean, these people, they're rebels from the south. You should have been killing them. They're traitors, not being nice to them. And Lincoln smiled and turned to him and said, but aren't I defeating them by befriending them? And there's something akin to that approach this morning as David deals with King Saul, who continues to view him as an enemy. And indeed, throughout this section, over several years, pursues David trying to kill him. Though he's constantly on the run in this section, David will not lift a hand against his pursuer Saul, even though he knows that God is going to make him the next king. He knows what's ahead, but he doesn't know how God's going to get him to that point. And he has to trust. And it leads to the question that I want us to consider this morning for ourselves. How are we to trust in God's plans for us today? You know, we usually don't know God's future plans for us, not in the sense that David did, knowing that he would later be king. So how are we to trust God and his plans for us today? Well, it brings us to the first answer to that question this morning. And the first answer is this, by realising that God can overcome opposition, that he can overcome sinful opposition. You see, at the end of chapter 20 last week, you might recall that we were left with the scenario where David was forced to flee Saul's court. He'd become a fugitive because Saul was attacking him, wanted to take his life. And so David runs after Jonathan, his son, gives him warning that things are not going to change. And in chapter 21, he flees to an Israelite town where the priests live called Nob. He then flees into a Philistine town called Gath. 
But then from chapter 22 through to chapter 26, the rest of the section we're considering this morning, he is forced to just keep moving around in the desert. He lives in caves, he's in various strongholds, out in the wilderness, just on the run constantly. He eventually, from chapter 22, starts to attract a whole bunch of disaffected people. He ends up with 400 men that are following him, and that grows to about 600 over this period. And he also has the very last priest available to give him direction in the country. And that was because in chapter 22, after Saul had learnt that David had been helped by the priests at the town of Nob, he decided that he would call them, investigate what had happened, and then he eventually has them all massacred. Not just the 85 priests, but all of their families, women, children, animals, everything. Completely destroys a town in Israel. It's a horrific account. But one guy survives, Abiathar. He's one of the sons of the head priest Ahimelech. He goes to David, explains what has happened, and David says, you'll be safe with me, stay here. And from chapter 23, David draws on this priest he has and asks for God's guidance. And God is continually giving him direction through Abiathar. And in fact, in uh, chapter 23, um, he's given instruction to go and save a Philistine town. It was meant to be Saul's job. Whoever was the king of the nation was meant to go into battle, right, on behalf of the people to protect them. Um, And Saul was failing to do this. Rather, he was wiping out towns in Israel. And so David, at God's instruction, goes and saves the town of Kilah, defeats the Philistines who were surrounding them. And it's meant to be a sharp contrast to Saul. Saul, in chapter 22, was busy chasing David and killing his own priests. And so there's a bit of backdrop in chapters 21 to 23, which brings us to our area that we're going to focus on from chapter 24 today. Because from chapter 24, the tables are turned. You see here that David twice has the opportunity to take Saul's life. Saul's been hunting him down with 3,000 men. You can never find him. But twice, God brings Saul right into the palm of David's hand. The first of those is in chapter 24. It's ironic after all Saul's searching. But in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, as we had read before, David again is out in the wilderness. He's in the desert of En Gedi. And Saul is chasing him with his 3,000 men, not finding him. But he goes into this cave to relieve himself. But who should be in the back of the cave, unaware to Saul, is David and a whole bunch of his men. And so the David's men are saying to him, well, look, surely this is a God-given opportunity. You know what the future is. You're going to be king. We all know that you're going to be king. Surely God's brought him so that you could kill him now. So just go in and finish him off. David says no. He does sneak up on Saul. He cuts a little edge off his robe and comes back to his um, soldiers. And he's actually conscience-stricken about this. He feels like he shouldn't have even done that. And so he rebukes them for even thinking that they should lay a hand on God's anointed king, the previous one, mind you. He has such a sacrosanct view of God's anointed that no one should touch the king and he won't be taking Saul's life. And so he allows his nemesis to leave the cave He's a short distance away and David comes out of the cave, shouts out to him, hey, you know, we happen to all be here. By the way, I just cut off the edge of your robe, but I've spared your life, clearly. But importantly, he makes a statement about God's judgments in all this, God's plans. Notice 1 Samuel 24 as we finally get to the text, verses 12 to 15. 
David speaking says, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. That's an interesting scenario, isn't it? Um, Saul must realize, as he does, that his life has been spared. You'd expect a reaction from him, and there's a strong one. We're actually told he wept aloud. And then he actually declares that David is more righteous than he is. He even, at this point, acknowledges that David will be the next king, despite him trying to kill him. Notice what Saul says in verses 20 and 21 in response. I know that you will surely be king, and that the king, kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Does that strike you as an ironic statement? Here's Saul, the king of the nation currently, hounding David with 3,000 men, trying to take his life, and he's somehow fearful that David's going to wipe out his family. He asks him to swear not to remove his family, announces that David will be king. It's a strange scenario, but God continues to work through strange events in these chapters to give David reassurance. This goes over several years, perhaps eight years, commentators suggest, David being hunted around the desert. Imagine if you're being hunted, leaving from hand to mouth, living in caves for eight years. You must be thinking, what is God doing? What kind of plan is this? How can I trust that God is making me the next king? Just everything seems to be a mess. But God ensures that he keeps sending messengers to David to encourage him throughout this. And so here, David is even being encouraged by Saul, who's trying to kill him, because Saul's acknowledging that even he knows what God's plan is, and it will happen. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 23, Jonathan, the son of Saul, goes to David and encourages him as well. Another irony, Saul can't find him for love or money, but Jonathan can just go straight to him and have a chat. And so in 1 Samuel 23, these are Jonathan's final words to David. Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. So over and over again, God keeps encouraging David with his plans for him. And of course, this comment here from Jonathan is fulfilled in what we've just read in chapter 24. Saul does later admit, David will be king. It's not a hard thing for him to admit in the sense that way back in chapter 13, God had already said, you won't have a dynasty. Your son won't be king after you. Chapter 15, he said to Saul through Samuel the prophet, the kingship's been taken away from you, Saul. Chapter 18, he starts to realize who the chosen one is, this successor that's already been chosen, and sees that it's probably David. And he becomes intensely jealous of David. And hence, this manhunt starts throughout chapters 21 to 26. All of these things have been shown to him. So what are you to make of Saul at this point? If he knows what God's plan is, why is he still pursuing David? 
Well, I guess we can only put it down to the fact that there is just a stubborn disobedience here from Saul. He either hopes vainly to thwart God's plan by removing David, or he's just so blindly jealous of him that he cannot see that in opposing David, he's opposing God. And so his actions are willfully sinful. He's determined to use his power to stop David, to act against him, even though he knows that's God's plan. You see how God's plans can't be thwarted, that we can trust even when we have opposition, even when things seem so unlikely that they're going to go forward. God has got that under control. That is not a problem. Let's apply this for ourselves and think about uh, believers since the time of Christ and their struggles with human sin and those that oppose them. Let me take you to the famous story of John Bunyan, 17th century English pastor and author. He was pursued through most of his life by the authorities of the Church of England. The Church of England at the time didn't want to allow any other churches to exist except the ones that they authorised. And because he was a Baptist preacher, he was a nonconformist, a Puritan, and he was one of many that had started churches and was preaching the gospel outside of the authorised churches. They didn't like it. And he suffered a lot during his life. But this was a guy that had suffered immensely before he even became a pastor. Um, within just a couple of weeks, he lost his mother and his sister, who he was very close with as a teenager. In the midst of his grief, he was conscripted into the army for three years. He gets out of the army, he marries, his first daughter Mary is born blind, he struggles with a lot of depression during his marriage, they have four children and then his wife suddenly dies. He's left with four young children, he's now serving in a church, he remarries his second wife Elizabeth then and his four children uh, lost to him because he is thrown in jail for pastoring a church and preaching the gospel. And they put him in jail for 12 years, 12 years in jail. Now, you'd have to think, well, what is God's plan in Bunyan's life? Surely he's got it all wrong. You know, here is somebody who is a gifted person, seeing many people come to faith. What is God doing? Well, he was setting up the greatest book to ever be written apart from the Bible, only The Pilgrim's Progress, which was written while he was in jail. Even in his lifetime, it became one of the most well-known books. Since then, for many, a couple of centuries, it was the most published book apart from the Bible. God used this man in ways that he could not imagine. And he wrote many books while he was in jail. One of them was called Advice to Sufferers. And in that book, he wrote this. It is not enemies' will, not what they are resolved upon, but what God wills, and what God appoints that shall be done. No enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise, and no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for his glory. I mean, that kind of wisdom was just born out of a life of difficulty. But he could see God's hand, God's plan in the things that happened even to him. You see, if you were to ask the question this morning, can sin thwart God's plan? The firm and sure answer is no. Nothing can stop God. He's in command of the whole universe. There's nothing that any person can do to stop his plans. 
Scripture is full of that encouragement. One classic example, of course, is in Genesis. Remember, Joseph was assigned by God to save all of Israel from famine. He took him down to Egypt. But how did he take him? Well, as a slave, because his own brothers sold him into slavery after throwing him down a well. But what does he say at the end of his life when all his family are rescued from famine and half the world as well? Genesis 50, verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for the good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God has his plans. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter could offer a similar explanation of the most important event in human history, Christ's death. Jesus, despite his you know, ministry seemingly being derailed as the Messiah by sinful actions of people, Peter could say this in Acts 2 verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, God's plans always take account of human sin. That is not a problem to God. Indeed, such is God's sovereignty that he can use human sinfulness to accomplish his purposes. And so Saul was going to fight and fight and fight and try and stop David, but it would mean nothing. David would be king because God had decided it. And surely that is great encouragement for us as we think about God's hand in our own lives. Whatever may come, God is in control. His plan will succeed. And even Saul would admit that in his clearer moments. That brings me to a second answer. Second answer to this question of how we can trust in God's plans for us. Not only by realizing he can overcome any opposition, but secondly, by waiting on the Lord. By waiting on the Lord. See, in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, the game of cat and mouse resumes. Saul is chasing David again after promising he'd never chase him. And there he is with his 3,000 men. The whole army are sleeping. And this time David's very bold. He takes one of his henchmen with him, Abishai, and he sneaks into Saul's army camp. They're all asleep. And this time it's just Abishai rather than a whole group of his men saying, Look! Surely this is the chance. God has ordained this moment. You're meant to kill him. This will speed things up in God's plan. You just finish him off or let me finish him off and then we'll all be sorted and you can be king. David says, no. That's not God's plan. I'm going to wait on him. Look at verses 9 and 10. 1 Samuel 26 verse 9. David says, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. There you go. David gives God three options. He takes the third, in fact. And this will be the last conversation that Saul and David have in the book. Saul is going to go into battle against the Philistines in chapter 31 a little while later and he's going to die along with his son Jonathan. Anyway, they escape out of Saul's camp. David does the same thing, calls out to Saul, hey, are you missing anything? I seem to be holding a spear and a jug that belonged to somebody else. Um, Saul, again, is shocked at the way that God has seen to it that David allowed his life to be spared. And in response to this, I think Saul is more humbled than he's ever been 
Notice his words in verse 21. He says to David in response to this, David's waiting on the Lord. I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Now, see, on a a purely human level, we know that a person's actions can affect another person's plans, not just in their sinfulness, trying to thwart things, but they can delay things through their actions. They can make things harder. You know, often our plans are delayed, aren't they, by unforeseeable circumstances. We don't know something's going to unfold, but it does, and that changes our plans. I had plans uh, back in February of 1996, um, I had invited my wife, Christine, out for dinner. At that point, we weren't married. I was going to propose that night. We went to the Summit Restaurant, the top of Australia Square, you know, the revolving one. It's very slow. Um, and we, we got right at window seats. We had a perfect sunset to look out at. It was immaculate. It could not have been a better sunset. I was going to propose after the meal. And it just never happened um, because... The waiters saw to it that they moved a couple who'd been sitting further up down right next to us, about a metre away on the glass right there. And as their conversation unfolded, it was clear that they were about to have a divorce and they were meeting for a final time to discuss dividing their possessions. (laughs) And so as their conversation went on, it got a bit more heated and it was eventually about who would fill up the stuff out of the house and who would get this and that. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. I can't propose in this situation. This is completely mood-destroying. And so we gave up. We, we left early. I did end up proposing an hour or two later on the steps of the opera house. God had a better plan. I just had to wait on his timing <laughs> so that there wouldn't be somebody next to us talking about ending their marriage. God's got his timing. You see, in chapters 24 and 26, David had the opportunity twice to take matters into his own hands, to speed up God's plan. You know, this must be the moment. But he doesn't do it. He waits patiently God's plan, God's timing. Unfortunately, it's all too late for any reconciliation really to be brokered between David and Saul. David has long since stopped trusting Saul's words to him, and rightly so, And they go their separate ways, as I mentioned. But David shows that he is a man after God's own heart, that he's not going to be guilty of taking the life of another. He's not going to try and speed up God's future plan. He's just going to wait. He does it well in chapters 24 and 26. But it must be said that David struggles with this same thing in chapter 25. See, in chapter 25, he's snubbed by a rich farmer named Nabal, He goes to him seeking help, some food and support for his army. This guy's like, no, I'm not helping you at all, David. I don't care less about you. And completely treats him, mistreats him. David is so angry that he's decided that he's going to go with some of his men and knock this guy off. Thankfully, God intervenes in this moment. He sends Abigail, Nabal's wife, who wisely knows what's about to happen and says, please don't do this. Here's some some supplies for your army. Don't kill him, and intervenes and says some very prophetic words to David, and he backs right off. He's saved from making that mistake. You see, because David's kingdom is not going to be taken by force. Rather, God is going to give it to him as a gift, and it will be in God's perfect timing, not anyone else's. 
And that brings us to a final answer, third and final answer to our question. How we can trust God's plans for us today. Well, thirdly, we can do that by trusting in the one who entrusted himself to his father. By trusting in the one who entrusted himself to the father. You see, the pattern of David not taking his kingdom by force provides a rich parallel with Jesus, the great son of David. He also would receive his kingdom from the hand of God, God the Father. He didn't take his kingdom by force. Jesus just entrusted himself to God's plans. And this was even predicted centuries before Jesus was even born. 600 years before he came to earth, we read in Isaiah 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, and this was fulfilled in the very limited response that Jesus gave, firstly to the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish religious council, and then to the Roman governor Pilate. Remember when he was arrested and then he went through these sort of mock trials, this kangaroo court, and he just refused to defend himself. In fact, people were shocked. Pilate couldn't cope with it. He actually said, well, aren't you going to say something? Don't you hear what these people are saying about you? Jesus didn't care. He's going to entrust himself to the Father's plan. He did not need to defend himself. His kingdom was not going to be taken by force. It was going to be received as he gave up his life as a willing sacrifice. Jesus explained this to Pilate in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, Christ's kingdom was going to be ushered in by his death and resurrection. It would seem to be a weakness that he was this man being crucified. Surely he's just another criminal. And yet it was through this that God was ushering in his kingdom in Christ. And through his death and resurrection, he would defeat our enemies of sin and its consequence of death and the devil. The way to enter this kingdom that Jesus established at that point for us too is not something that we fight for, that we win for ourselves, but it's something we simply receive as a gift. We simply trust in Jesus and his payment and we're forgiven, we enter into his kingdom. It's amazing. It's not like a worldly kingdom. How do we enter? We enter through repentance and faith. We repent of our sin. We acknowledge that we have stood opposed to God's plans, that we have not lived for him. We've lived as ourselves, as the king, as if we're in charge. We acknowledge that sin and we turn in faith and trust to Jesus who paid for us. And then we are given a right standing with God. We're given what we don't deserve. We enter into his kingdom, not based on our merit, on our force, our effort, simply on Christ's work. That's only step one, isn't it? If you've become a believer, if you have made that step, then you need to continue to entrust your life to God and his plans for us for the remainder of the years that God gives you. You actually need to seek his guidance, his direction, just as David kept doing. 
But reflecting on David's experience, you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't seem to get direct guidance the way David does. You know, David just turns to his priest Abiathar and Abiathar says, this is what you should do tomorrow. That doesn't seem to happen for me. Is it a bit different now? In principle, there is no difference. In fact, you have something better than David had. You don't need a priest next to you. You've got a great high priest in Jesus, and so you can come before the Father in prayer yourself. You don't need a human mediator. You've been given direct access to God in prayer. Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16 talk about this great privilege that we have. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Never underestimate the power of prayer. God can answer your prayer in the most unexpected way. He can do it instantly or it might be years down the track, but God will see to it that his plan unfolds in your life. Our problem, of course, is that sometimes the answer is wait, and we live in such an instant society where we really want the answers now, and we're not willing to wait on what God might do. But we need to wait. We need to learn from David in that regard. But furthermore, not only do we have the privilege of prayer, because we don't need a human mediator or priest, we also don't need a prophet. In these chapters, David has the prophet from Gad turn up and tell him what to do next. Here's a word from God for you, David. You say, well, I don't get that either. No, you don't. You've got something better. You've got God's word in its final form given to you so that God can speak to you every moment of every day. You don't need a prophet to turn up. You have all that you need before you. Let's go to Hebrews 1 to see that. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. There's the Old Testament summarized. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, there's a progression from promise to fulfillment as we move from the Old Testament to the New. You have the final word in Jesus. God had been sending messages, prophets for centuries. But when he finally turns up in flesh himself, God the Son incarnate, then you don't need any prophet to turn up anymore. You have Jesus and you have his completed word before you. The Bible centering on Christ is the complete and final word from God. Now, I'm not saying that that limits what God might do to direct your life. Of course not. If he should choose, he can send you a dream. He often does that, doesn't he, in parts of the world where God's Word is suppressed where there's not easy access to hear his voice. Yes, he could speak to you in a burning bush if he wants to. He can send you a donkey like he did for Balaam. For that matter, he could write on a wall. But the question I want to ask now is in terms of what we should expect or should look for in terms of what God has, has promised to do for us. And the truth is that what he has promised to do is to speak to us through his word, the record of Christ's life and all its implications in the Bible. That is the method. And so often we go in search for something else, for some other word from God, when we have what we need right in front of us. In 1995, um, I got to visit Hearst Castle. Um, it's in San Simeon in California. 
It was built by Randolph Hearst, billionaire US publisher, made his money out of newspapers. He died in 1951, but for several decades, he would spend over a million dollars a year on collecting antiques and artworks. It was a love that had apparently been invested in him by his mother, and he had the money to pursue it. And so this guy had every antique under the sun, and he would just collect anything that he wanted. And so when he saw in a magazine one day some very special antique that he really wanted to get hold of, he would bring his agent, and he did this time and said, go out and find this. If you've got to go overseas, I must have this piece. Buy it and bring it back. The guy was sent off two or three months later. He comes back to him and says, I can't find this piece. It's not available. I don't know where I can purchase it. He says, no, I must have this piece. This is your role. Go out and find it for me. He comes back a couple of months later, all excited, and says to him, Mr. Hearst, I've, I've found the piece. That's wonderful, Mr. Hearst says. Where did you find it? Well, it was in your own warehouse. You purchased it a few years ago yourself. You already have it. I think the same could be said of Christians who have all the riches of God's guidance in his word, have all the privilege of prayer, of speaking to God at any moment of any day, and yet ignore these common means of grace and go in search of new words from God, which they haven't been promised. Yes, God can do unusual things, but he doesn't promise to do those things for you. But he does promise to speak to you through his word, the Bible. Our problem is that the Christian is often wanting a map, an exact blueprint of their life. What job should I get next week? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What should I do tomorrow? And God has not given us a blueprint. There's a very good reason that he hasn't given us a blueprint, and that's because he wants us to live by faith. We need to trust him with our life. If we were given all the answers now, we'd simply think we're doing things in our own strength. We're not given a blueprint, rather we're given a compass, or if you like, a guide. And that guide is Jesus himself, where to follow him. That's what we do. Follow Jesus. And the way we do that is by growing in our understanding of God's word and prayerfully meditating on it and coming before him through our great high priest. Of course, God has given you other helps as well. He's given you a group of believers in a local church who have wisdom and counsel that they can share with you. He's blessed you with the Holy Spirit if you've come to trust in Jesus and he can help you make wise decisions with the mind that God has blessed you with. But we've seen today, if we're going to trust in God's sovereign plans for us, we need to grasp that he can overcome any opposition. We're not to be thrown off by the circumstances that surround us. God can overcome sin. He'll just use it for his plan in your life. Don't be thrown by the things around you and think that God doesn't know what he's doing. Secondly, we need to realize that we have to wait on God's perfect timing. So often, we want to take matters into our own hands. We feel the pressure that David felt to just act now and sort it out ourselves. But we're called to wait for God to lead us. And then thirdly, we need to trust in Jesus, God's final word to us, our great high priest who gives us the wonderful privilege of coming before God in prayer and asking him for wisdom. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. These are great promises. Let us hold on to them. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the way you delivered your word to David and how we enjoy something much better in the final product that is the Bible. And through the great privilege of prayer that we enjoy, we thank you for these common means of grace. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, for the fellowship we have with other believers, from the way you can use all kinds of circumstances in our life to point us. But help us, above all, to trust you, to know that you work even in the hardest of circumstances and to wait on your timing. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.